Welcome to Be There Done That, a Catholic history podcast with Lee and Jake. Um, it has been a long time since our last episode. But in that time, we finally had our third child. Yep, and that's made everything easier. Very easy. <laughs> so easy. Um, no, and we, we decided to... to uh, hold off just a little bit longer for the celibacy episode and do a fun episode of just talking about Catholic traditions or just odd things that we do as a community. Yeah, these are going to be kind of, I wouldn't say, I, I was telling Lily, I don't know, it's still pretentious to call them like folk customs, but we're definitely kind of at the grassroots level of customs. We're not going to be talking about like um, the kind of stuff you probably would see in like a Scott Hahn book of like, really venerable unquestioned kind of catholic traditions like it's not going to be like we're not gonna be talking about like the liturgy or um scapulars per se or something it's gonna this is gonna be a little bit more kind of wacky obscure stuff um and the reason for that uh is in the bead episode you may recall if you listen to that that we got at least i got a little bit overly excited probably about some of the stuff bead talked about like the eating the dirt from the the place where King Oswald had been killed, and he had a lot of stuff like that, like of of just strange kind of Catholic folk practices, devotions that maybe didn't have like a lot of official sanction, but were part of this sort of conversion and worldview that they were just kind of all soaking up at the time. So we're going to talk about some stuff like that, and whether you know how legitimate some practices are, what their story is, as much as we could tell, and. Um, just kind of try to have a little bit lighter conversation. And we are learning about celibacy. Meanwhile, we're researching. Hopefully you can see in our past episodes that we really try to read a couple books and and know what we're talking about before we just put, you know, record a, a podcast. Um, so we're working on that. Celibacy is a pretty big topic in terms of like the time frame we're looking at. And also there's a lot of really serious kind of ancient church history a lot of church councils and things like that that we're looking into so that's why thank you for your patience we're we're just kind of taking our time on that episode so do you want me to get started or you yeah want to get started? i guess the one or thing... should we should we both talk about our dirt things and like <laughs> we don't have to suggest the dirt i know we, we do have kind of a good transition i think with some of the dirt from the beat episode yeah i will say one of the things that made me want to really do this episode was to just share the fact that Mexico and Latin America have a candy that is basically an unconsecrated Eucharist. They're called oblegas. Oblegas? Yeah. Yeah, so they're basically communion wafers, like that little, the kind of brittle little unleavened bread that you see at church, except that it can be colored like purple or blue. They can be really big, like big, like a pizza. My children were given Paw Patrol Oblegas. <laughs> <laughs> like cut into the shape of yeah. a Paw Patrol character. Yeah. And then also they do, they'll make them into like little like caramel sandwiches, like little kind of candies. Yes. And wrap them up and you can get those at like the corner store. Mm-hmm. So I just thought the world needed to know this, that people are just eating Eucharists with like... Unblessed Eucharists. Yes, unconsecrated. Of course, of course. It's not nothing like blasphemous. I actually think it's kind of beautiful. It's like it's so entered the culture that that's just like like here, let's eat some purple host crackers. But we can we can either go the dirt direction or we can continue with. We the... can do the dirt direction. Okay, so dirt. Okay. So the bead one, 
made me think a lot about other examples of kind of devotions involving collecting dirt. And I just thought of in uh, Rome, there's the Basilica of the Holy Cross where St. Helena, Constantine's mother, brought, I think, a boatload of dirt from Jerusalem. I mean, it was a lot of dirt because they used it to actually, I think, in the foundations or to build the church on top of it. And there's a section where there's a glass and underneath the glass you can there's dirt and that's it's dirt from jerusalem that she brought back from her expedition to go searching for relics of jesus like the the cross and the placard from the um we call it the placard the little sign from the from on the cross that says jesus of nazareth king of the jews in three languages so supposedly that's the authentic one she found there and it's all in this church you know built on dirt from the holy land and i think that that's beautiful but i've heard kind of some criticism of that idea as being kind of pagan in origin because of um, it, it used to be the idea that gods were national and that if you're going to worship like this god you needed to be in that country so it was a major problem if you were for example sent into exile there was a question of like can you still pray to your national god if you've been taken out of your native land so but i i don't think that that's what's at the root of it i think that it was a a genuine devotion to the you know the things that had been in contact with the apostles and with Jesus and then um, I was so I, I, what I was research when I was researching the Tierra de San Juan um, I found out that there, there's actually a BBC article that talks about the fact that the dirt eating is a tradition not only in um, like Mexico or Central or South America because Argentina does has a thing too that it's actually even in Iran and Nibia. So Namibia? Namibia, maybe. What is it? Is it Namibia? Namibia, yeah. Okay. Namibia. My bad. But it's just interesting to see that different countries really um, embrace this because it's like, well, is it like a pagan tradition? Yeah, that's something? what I was going to say. Is, is it interesting or is it a sign that maybe it's beyond the pale that it's like a superstitious practice? But I wanted to kind of go into the history of the Tierra de San Juan. Uh-huh. And um, uh, we're talking about San Juan de Lagos in Jalisco, Mexico, which is like kind of near the beach. Like that's the west west coast of Mexico area. But anyway, so this all started in the 16th century, actually, uh, with the first miracle in the hospital of the of the. El Hospital del Indios, which in, in English is translated as Hospital of the Indians. Anyway, so uh, it's suggested that this dirt has healing powers. And um, it was sought out for many years, so much so that it was... Um, so the area that was thought of as healing was between a well near this hospital um, where the monks were. Um, and people came in and started taking Wasn't there dirt like a, the, from the wall. Yeah, there was like a, a priory or something made out of earth. Like it was, it was like adobe or clay or something. Yeah. And people like literally tore it down, taking yes. all the dirt. So it's torn down, but apparently the well water is still taken mm-hmm. as part of that tradition. Um, and, and there was so, like a... Wasn't the... So there was a Marian apparition there. That's where yes, the miracles yes. kind of got started. So there's a Virgen de San Juan. Is that there? Is that a, the one kind of distinctive, alternate Mexican 
Mary that you showed me. Yes. Those, so there's, I mean, what I mean by that, sorry, is like there's the Virgin of Guadalupe, which obviously is a really iconic image for like Mexican people. And then there's, but there's also this the one. De San Juan. This, so it has its own kind of icon or image yes. there. Yes. Not a miraculous image, but just like a famous painting that's associated with that church, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, it's interesting that honestly the tradition still carried. I don't know if it's fully carried on by my generation of, especially of, of those of us who are second, third generation Americans, and also those of us who are non-practicing Catholics. I mean, I am, and so um, we still do this. But I, since I'm like third generation Mexican American, it it's not something that like my my mom did to us like it was something that she when she had cancer she had the dirt but it's nothing that she continued on whenever we were ill did she actually eat it yeah oh have you ever eaten the dirt yes i've tried the dirt myself but i've never like whenever i'm actually sick it's not a tradition that like we go i wouldn't use it like every time you're sick some people do cancer yeah the the one article i found said that some people do really actually seek it out often whenever they're sick so maybe that is Maybe that's what a faithful person should do. Yeah. I guess that's beyond what our commentary would be. But going back, so I guess when I, I was talking about St. Helena and you translate, you transferred over to this, I mean, how much of that do you think is coming from a non-Catholic worldview? Do you think it's more of a folk tradition that sort of would be there even if it was still I, a Aztec I'm thinking, no, type I'm of thinking, I'm thinking... It was, no, I'm thinking it was a Catholic tradition because if we're to be in these places and be consistent, I mean, for, do you get what I'm saying? Like for beads to, yeah, for it to be kind of part of the Catholic tradition, it, I feel like it is like an actual Catholic. Yeah, and um, I'm not familiar, I guess, to, to give the pushback against myself, play devil's advocate to myself on that. It, like I don't I've read a little bit of like Norse and Anglo-Saxon stuff and I don't recall anything that would be analogous to that from the native kind yeah. of pagan roots and the article or the blog that I read the about the dirt it didn't comment on anything being part of the Aztec culture unlike yeah. some of the other Mexican traditions I'm going to talk about this was not connected to Aztec yeah. culture and I guess I the reason or I keep any native Mexican. Yeah. And the reason why I'm trying to give a little bit of airtime just to questioning it is because I have heard... So there's a story in Second Kings chapter 5 about someone named Naaman, who's like a general, I think, and comes to Israel to be healed. And then after he's healed, he wants to take with him like a couple donkey loads of dirt from Israel to pray on. And I've heard someone, I think a priest on another podcast, interpret that story as being like a misunderstanding of the God of Israel, that you don't need to have the dirt in order to pray to this God. And that's true. But I guess I feel like there's got to be some connection there because that, that, I mean, there is an impulse, like I want the holy thing from the place where this great power was at work. And I mean, I think there's something good in that, but I guess there's also room for criticism. Maybe that you're trying to, I just think there's a connection there that maybe people could still be like, this is just a weird misunderstanding of how God works with the dirt. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I it, I think it's hard for both of us to wrap our heads around because I think we've explained before that you and I are a little bit more logical and linear in our thinking. Yeah, more rationalistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's a bad thing. And I guess it's still, at the end of the day, I'm not sure that that Bible story about Naaman really applies to this and that it's really connected historically at all. 
I mean, it, I guess it may. But like we were saying, though, I, I just in all these different countries that are Catholic where it's popped up, I just don't think it's actually coming from a from pagan the, like, yeah, antecedent. Pagan, yeah. like, and I don't think you can just take one example from the Old Testament and say, well, like, well that's what, how pagans think. And that's where this is coming from because and some of these, and Anglo-Saxons I think some of these will like, well, some of my Mexican ones will be pagan. <laughs> <laughs> At least open to that <laughs> criticism. No, yeah. Um, do you want to continue with one of yours? Yeah, ones? we could change gears a little bit. So, okay. well, and sort of transitioning, keeping dirt in mind. My really questionable one that I wanted to talk about was the practice of burying a St. Joseph statue in order to sell your house. So the tradition, if you haven't heard of this, is that, at least in America, if you're trying to sell a house and you're having a lot of trouble, like it's been on the market for a few months or something, people will suggest to you, like, well, have you buried, tried burying a St. Joseph statue upside down next to your for sale sign? And there's a couple different variations, but that's kind of the basics of it. And people will take a, they'll go to a Catholic store, buy a little kit, and they'll probably put their St. Joseph statue in a bag or something, bury it next to their sign. And it's a little statue. It's a couple inches high. And then um, they'll say a prayer. And then you're supposed to, once your house sells, take the St. Joseph statue and put it in a place of honor in your new home. And I've known people who've done that. And if you Google this practice online, it gets some pretty negative press from kind of Catholic apologists who consider it just like rank superstition, (laughs) which maybe it is. But I tried to track down where it actually comes from, and it's actually really difficult to tell. And I think there's some elements of kind of like urban legend. Are you getting explain where? Yeah, so what I mean by urban legend, an example would be like in our neighborhood. Well, let me explain. First of all, it's hard to tell where the St. Joseph thing dates back to. If you Google it, you'll hear different explanations like, oh, medieval nuns were needing to sell their convent or buy their convent, so they buried St. Joseph and it worked. And some stories will say that medieval nun was St. Teresa of Avila. And then there's other stories devoting, connecting it to different people. I think that this trying to like connect it back to some venerable tradition is sort of like an urban legend. And what I mean by that is, for example, in our neighborhood, there's a creepy old building, which has like been renovated as really nice condos or something. Mm-hmm. And the story about it locally was that it was an insane asylum and that it's haunted and all this bad stuff had happened there. But in reality, it doesn't seem that doesn't seem to have been ever true of that building. It seems to have just always been kind of a luxury apartment complex. There maybe had been a sanatorium somewhere in the neighborhood, which had burned down, had been an old house. And I think that it had free floated, that story had free floated kind of around and attached itself eventually after 50 years to the biggest, most prominent creepy building in the neighborhood (laughs) and had become, you know, the truth that this is, this building was that and no local who is in on the truth will, will live there because they know that it's haunted. So that's an example of urban legend. There's like a little bit of a germ of truth that kind of attaches itself to something really prominent and it takes off from there. And I think that maybe with the St. Joseph practice, I think it really, it's probably just sort of a general practice that has been around and then it took off in like the 70s or 80s apparently when there was a lot of real estate stuff going on in the market. And then people, once they noticed the tradition, started to try to fill in a backstory for it that was, you know, made sense. Since Teresa of Avila really is important in the history of devotion to St. Joseph, because she had a, you know, she did have a convent that was devoted to him, she had a devotion to him. I think that that story 
kind of attached itself to her, even though I can't find or recall anything that from like her autobiography, for example, that says that she ever did that. Let me stop for breath. (laughs) Okay. So that said, I think that there is possibly a saint who's connected with it named St. Andre Bessette, who's Canadian. And he was involved in his like life's work was building this big shrine to St. Joseph in Montreal, Canada. And he wanted to build it on this site called Mount Royal. And the, I guess there was some question over whether they're going to be able to buy it. And he went uh, supposedly and buried a St. Joseph medal on the site. And what he had confided in a friend that he had done that. And he was hoping that that was going to help them acquire it. And then also a, one of his brother monks, or I don't know if they're monks, but they were like some sort of order told him that in his room, the St. Joseph statue kept turning itself to face Mount Royal, which I thought was kind of a creepy story, but he thought it was holy and, and wonderful. But the, the Joseph kept turning himself to face the site, and St. Andre told him, like, well, of course, he wants, he wants to, to be there. And that stuck out to me because, one, it actually involves a statue, not a medal, and, you know, it, it has that element of, like, turning the statue because in the, the St. Joseph tradition of burying the statue – it, you bury it upside down because the, and the hokey thing people say is like, well, he wants to get out of the ground. And that's one of the things that's denounced by the Catholic apologists is that this is so stupid and superstitious. The idea that St. Joseph's statue doesn't want to be upside down. But that's kind of in the story about this actual saint that they were talking about this, the statue moving itself. Um, anyway, there is actually a big shrine there. I think he's buried there. Um, and... There's uh, Oh, and the other thing is he put a little St. Joseph statue in a cave on the land after they bought it with a little dish where people were going to, I guess, put their their offerings for the building of the site. Um, so I think that could be connected. I never found anything really firm saying actually connecting this to a, to a solid, like this was the starting point for that tradition. So I, I think that probably it just sort of took off by itself and they got connected to a saint later. But that's a pretty close story. Yeah. Um, so most of mine are going to be Mexican because, I mean, I just, I feel like I just need to know my history enough and culture enough. And there's some really good ones. Yeah, to, I just need to, I would like to be able to tell my children, you know, their heritage and stuff. Um, but before we get into it, because I'm going to basically talk about Christmas, is there anything else you want to, oh, I I guess I can go down. Anything else I want to say on mine? Well, let's recap so far. So we've gone from eating dirt and burying stuff to now we're going to go to christmas oh we talked about the oblegas mm-hmm. yeah oh also i just wanted to point out i had asked a group of friends if they knew any other traditions from the oblegas and i forgot that they're supposed to be aplatek i'm not sure how to pronounce that in um aplatki aplatki oh i oh it's polish no it's oh. a te- it's czech oh czech yeah uh-huh up Vodki? I don't know. Um, that's and supposed to be flatbread given at Christmas. It's similar to Oblegas. And apparently there's like hmm. um, also some in Polish tradition. So, I mean, it's not like uh-huh. just Mexican tradition that has it. That's interesting. Uh-huh. So that kind of makes sense, though, because I, I bet the people who are producing that in those countries, you know, maybe traditionally there probably would have been a surplus and they would have wanted to to use it for something else. I, I mean, I don't know. But 
So it said there was also a Lithuanian equivalent. So there's kind of Polish, Czech. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And we, I was surprised to see also when we were looking up the oblegas that it's not just a candy. People actually will turn it into almost like a pizza. Like they'll, it, I mean, or they put like sauce on it or something. Like, yeah. Hmm. So let's go. So I'll start my Christmas. Yeah, you can um, transition to the more to Mexican traditions. Well, one last Mexican tradition is a whole night adoration that I haven't seen too much detail about, but my mom claims that there's a a, a it, night that or a day that's like a whole. Is it different than like adoration just in the church normally? It's like a a day devoted to just adoration. Oh. Yeah. And it's apart from like the church calendar. It's like a cultural practice. I may I it may be a part of the Mexican hmm. calendar. I'm not I'm not sure. I couldn't find too much on that. On that. But you want to talk about the posada. I, yeah, I want to talk about the posadas and well just the Christmas in Mexico in general. So the posadas actually started from the fact that they were celebrating and I'm going to have Jake see, say these names because I can't uh-huh. say that. During the Aztec... Oh, okay. So, wintertime? Is this a, a, a yeah. deity? No, this is a wintertime. Oh, it's just the name of the wintertime? So, during, yeah. So, during the Panquetza, Aztec... Panquetzalitzli. So, Panquetzalitzli. Say it again. Panquetzalitzli. So, during that time of... Panquetzalitzli. They would celebrate their war god, which was... Huitzilopochtli. And Jake... He's, I think, Huitzil de Poli is a little bit more famous because if you read stories of like the Aztec conquest, he's, I think he's the, um, kind of their national god. And they would celebrate this, the war god during uh, December 17th through the 26th. And yeah. And so, um, the Posada started from that tradition. He's pretty much Aztec Odin. (laughs) And so, the Posadas is kind of like, reenacting the scene of Mary and Joseph going door to door to see if there's room. And posadas are like parties that are hosted by people. Usually like in our small town, it's a person who's going to host the virgin. Like there's a virgin statue from the parish and they parade it around and they go to the uh, to a person's house kind of Kind of like in the tradition of carolers, they would go sing to the person or and ask them for if there's room, like as if you know. It's, yeah. So it's like both like caroling and like a semi play, asking them if there's room in the inn, and so then as a thank you for their singing, the person welcomes them in, and there's like a a small little parade and you know holding the virgin and stuff and then the virgin's put somewhere and then the person you know it's a evening of you just, celebration just a little celebration yeah and um is there some documented like present or uh, antecedent for that with the punk or is it just it just kind of coincides with what with that what do you mean was there some practice like that in like native culture that they know about, or is, um, it, is that probably not, the Christian addition to that? It was probably the Christian addition to it. I okay. don't, I didn't, not, I didn't see too much. I just no, think that they okay. wanted to. Yeah. I, from what I read, was it that they kind of just wanted to squash down the, you know, like. I mean, they transitioned just, the yeah, people to. They gave they gave them a new Catholic holiday to kind of replace that one. Yes, because I mean that's a long celebration time, the seventeenth through the twenty sixth. Yeah, and so. 
Well, it's like it's kind of like Yuletide or the mm-hmm. you know the season of Christmas going up to Epiphany. Yeah, and so during during Advent too is a time that we start seeing nacimientos, and the nacimientos are um, basically nativity scenes. And we were lucky enough to be in Italy during the Christmas season as our wedding um, was during Christmas time. Or Yeah, we got married like just before Christmas, a few days, and then we sort of traveled around like Florence, Tusk- or, uh, Siena, some other places. And so we got to see their version of Nacimientos. So it's not just Mexico that has like these nativity scenes now what's so special about these nativity scenes is that it's not just your basic nativity scene that i've literally only seen basic nativity scenes here in america and very rarely and it's just very basically mary joseph jesus and maybe some wise men's camels. yeah but not not anything you're, elaborate you're talking basic like you have a couple statues from the hallmark store right yeah which is great but by elaborate you're talking about like i've you've built an entire scene out of like which my grandmother does do out of like paper and uh, pieces of tree branches and lights and music yes and And these are like very very elaborate like you even see sometimes some like we saw in italy and i've seen in in other places in mexico they'll have like people from the town or things like that and uh, incorporated. I remember we were at the church. I don't remember what it's called. It may be a Santa Croce also in um, in uh, Florence where I think it's where Machiavelli's buried. But we went down the steps and in like the basement, they had like a big nativity scene. Yeah. And when, we, when I went to Paris during my college years, they actually had projected nativity scenes, like elaborate nativity scenes, yeah. Notre Dame. Which I don't know, you know, with the restoration and stuff. Oh, yeah, I wonder if that'll... Con- I mean, I'm sure there's lots of other churches there that maybe will continue that. But, the and just side note, the nativity scenes, those are supposed to be traced back to St. Francis of Assisi, right? Yes. He actually started that? Yeah. So that's cool. But you... And then there's also, though, this element of um, the... With the nativity scenes, there's the baby Jesus dolls. Yes. And we haven't talked about that okay. yet. So, um, well, this is going to be with the song. So on Christmas Eve, we all get together at my grandmother's house and we pray rosary. And then we sing a lullaby to baby Jesus. And so in our family tradition, it's called Alaro Niño, which is kind of like rock by baby lullaby that we sing. And so a set of godparents is assigned to that baby Jesus because it's at my grandmother's house and there's so many... Family members, everyone has their own little baby Jesus. It's a whole crowd of little baby Jesuses. Yeah. I have all these dolls. And so um, we're singing the lullaby. You know, godparents are chosen and they they sing the... the. I didn't realize they, I was signing up to be a godparent. So every time I hold one of those... Yeah. Oh. So they sing to the baby Jesus and stuff. With that, another tradition that we got from... That reminded me of all of this was when we were reading the 100... The uh, a history... I think it's called The History of the Catholic Church and 100 Objects. Yes. It, it talked about, like, kissing objects and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we do right after singing the lullaby is that we take these... All of them. All of these baby Jesuses. And people get, get a kiss. And since it's so many of us, it used to be that we had the baby Jesuses and a candy... And I think that's still a tradition in Mexico. You kiss it and then you get a candy. Now it's that we give a kiss 
and then eventually the family will come back around with like bags of candy and oranges. Yeah. What are those um, called? Uh, those bags have a name. It's just like candy and peanuts and an orange. I know. My mind just went I'm blank. forgetting. That's not that part's not that important. But this really is, this is like seriously like it's that's a ritual Lily's family's been doing the entire time that I've known her. And every since I've yeah, and winter. since I've grown up too. But what's interesting every is Christmas that Eve yeah. Evening. So what's interesting is that when Jake and I first met, and we were talking about Christmas and Christmas traditions, is that so this whole rocking of the baby Jesus actually doesn't end till Candlemas or Epiphany. I thought Epiphany. No, Candlemas. Oh, it doesn't. Yeah, it's February second, and like, and like this is where we keep arguing about oh. it because. Because for me, growing up, Christmas technically didn't end till February 2nd. And it's because you present your baby Jesus to, you bring them to church. Oh, like like the actual presentation. Yes. So Candlemas, just in case you're not, you're getting lost at this point. Candlemas is a holiday, it's kind of the popular name for the feast of the presentation of baby Jesus at the temple. Like when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus the baby with their offerings to the temple in Jerusalem, and then they meet um, the prophetess Anna and the prophet Simeon, and so and there's some mention of light in the the, the canticle of Simeon, I think, right? And then mm-hmm. that's why it's associated with candles, which get blessed. Candle mass. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's another tradition all in itself <laughs> that we could talk about. But we got our so candle like, yesterday. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> Jake and I had always have had this argument because for him, and that is like the British tradition is just 12 days of Christmas, is that, you know, Christmas, the Christmas season officially ends. So the American tradition is uh, Christmas season officially ends pretty much mid-morning of December 25th. <laughs> like, but basically after Christmas, it is done. The traditionally, I had thought it goes to Epiphany, but then with Lilia, really, kind of her family, it, it kind of continues even past that to yeah. Candlemas. Yeah, and one thing that I wanted to bring up with the Nascimentos really quickly is that actually, um, in reading the Catholic All Year Round Compendium, there are lots of traditions that you guys can read there, especially including food and things like that. It's a really good source for liturgical living especially with families but one of them that it brings up which if you have the book it's on page 71 talks about british pies being made on um gaudaute sunday which is also called bambini sunday i've never heard of that and basically so meat pies and things like that were made to look like mangers oh cool yeah we should bring that back i like meat pies Really, there's like a tradition to make the nativity scene much more than it it is portrayed. I feel like in America, make it more elaborate. Yeah, and I I don't know how much to go into this, but I just suspect that that's partly even as American Catholics, I think that probably one since we're a little bit cut off from our immigrant roots that we've lost some of that. But also, I think that just since America, I think it is a lot more Protestant than we maybe realize and i think that in the reformation we just lost a lot of that kind of iconography of like the i mean just the everyday kind of sacramentals the the images of sort of our faith like in food and in our these little devotionals and um i mean even with the nativity scenes being so simplified i think i just can't help but think that it has something to do with like the removal of the saints from the churches, removal of stained glass, all that stuff that happened 500 years ago. But that's just my 
side thought. I didn't study that, and I'm not going to go into a lot of bashing of people. But I just think that probably in America, that's why this is also surprising, is because we just don't have that. No, we don't. Much. We don't. And then we just, I mean, our holidays are the bank holidays or the yeah what the government has stated as we sort of have a weird like post french revolution state religion <laughs> sometimes and that's not is that's not to say that that's all catholics that's just our families and um i think like jake has stated it's just you know stepping away from our immigrant roots and things like that and this and this is why this episode kind of inspired us to really look into some of our own tradition or you know our own yeah speaking background of traditions kind of calendar that kind of connects with the one the last one that i wanted to talk about from from my list which was saint christopher okay so there's a little bit confusion about saint christopher who's kind of regarded as like a legendary saint like legendary in the sense of maybe not even being true like not real but he does seem to have been an actual third century christian martyr and there's not much else known about him besides that but there was some confusion about whether he's still a saint or not because in the 60s I think it was actually 1969, there was a reform of the Roman calendar, and he got his name gets dropped from the, the list of saints' holidays, at least that are applicable to the universal church. And part of that seems to have been that he just wasn't considered important enough, or he might have been considered kind of historically questionable, so he gets taken off the calendar. Now, he still has a feast day, it's just that it's not on the universal general calendar. But I thought it'd be interesting to talk about him because you'll even hear non-catholics kind of know that saint christopher is connected as like sort of a patron saint of safe travels and it's because he was so popular for so long and he is a historic saint the story is that saint christopher was originally like a prince of like a pagan king and he's a really huge guy and he goes off to sort of try to find a, a master to serve to, as a warrior or something and he ends up serving a king who crosses himself whenever he hears about the devil. And St. Christopher realizes, like, oh, you're afraid of the devil. So I'm going to go find the devil and serve him because he's more powerful than you. So then St. Christopher goes and actually finds the devil. And then he realizes the devil's afraid of Jesus. So then he decides, oh, I'm going to go serve Jesus. And you can see this kind of sounds like a fairy tale because it's some prince traveling between kingdoms. Yeah. And these really kind of similar episodes happening over and over again. But then he becomes a monk, goes into, or he becomes a hermit in the desert, and somebody convinces him to help people cross a river. And the story is that one day, a he hears a child calling to him, and he looks three times. On the third time, he sees the child, and he carries the child across the river. The child gets heavier and heavier as he's crossing, to the point where he's almost going to drown. Then he gets to the other side, and he says, "I feel like I was carrying the weight of the world on me." And the child says, "Well, I'm Jesus." I, I carry the weight of the world, so you were that's what you were feeling. And so it's this miraculous kind of vision of Jesus. Then there's like that's like plopped onto it. The next story, which is that he goes into town, starts preaching and doing miracles, gets in prison, gets martyred, and there's miracles around that. I kinda think that the two stories got shoved together in the, the really famous kind of medieval collections like the Golden Legend, and that's you know, probably the truer part of the story is the martyrdom part. Mm-hmm. But he does seem to have been venerated really early on, like even in the 500s and 600s. By, and just prominent people kind of allude to him, that church is being named after him. So he is a serious saint. It's just that he's probably gotten a little bit encrusted with some, some kind of legendary accounts. But 
anyway, he's a victim of post-Vatican II reforms to some extent (laughs) (laughs) that made it kind of confusing situation. I just wanted to go over like some of the food from what I gleaned from asking a group. Does dirt count as food? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. Okay, anyway, I think most of us know that like some of the major holidays like Mardi Gras have quite a bit of food like king's cake you know in pennsylvania it's shrove tuesday usually it's like the pancakes and things like that and apparently that might have come from the german donuts oh, i've never heard of that uh, which donuts is Fashnack. i don't know how to pronounce that i may have been pronouncing it incorrectly so forgive me but there are quite a bit of traditions of different foods that people like to eat and one of them that was brought up to my attention and I like I said I was doing more of the history I ended up doing more of history of the Mexican traditions was um somebody brought up a Polish tradition where the basket is filled with all uh with all the food you're going to eat on Sunday and it's brought on Holy Saturday to be blessed so you're talking on Sunday you're talking about Easter Sunday yes Easter Sunday sorry Easter Sunday and you come you would come Holy Saturday with your basket of food that's cool yeah and then I think most of us know the tradition of um, you know in St. Nicholas putting out your shoes and having your shoes filled Hispanic culture it's uh, the three kings and epiphany your shoes are also filled or your gifts are brought I think now the traditions on, in those countries have changed as well, and they've incorporated more of, you know, Christmas Day, the 25th of Santa. But honestly, we kind of carry the tradition here, which limits the gifts on Christmas Day. If you guys hear any background noise, it is either our toddlers running around or our little newborn. <laughs> um, so with the interruption made... Um, We hope to bring you guys a good episode of Celibacy here soon. Please feel free to share with us on our Instagram your traditions and your family because we'd love to hear them. Anything else? I would also just say, as far as the suggested reading, something that's really useful to me is there's a free Catholic encyclopedia online called New Advent. So you could check that out if you have a question about some saint or tradition. With that, we uh, like I said, please f- feel free to check out our Instagram, and we'd love to hear from you uh, on what traditions your family has continued on. And that's going to be the end of our episode for today. We're just going to end with a quick prayer in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, St. Joseph and St. Christopher. Pray for us. Amen. Thank you for joining us. 